Three. Mrs. Clayton, his housekeeper, found Alan Turing's dead body in his bed on the morning of June eight, nineteen fifty-four. Nearby was an apple, out of which several bites had been taken. You will by now have heard of the death of Mr. Allen, she wrote to his mother. It was such an awful shock. I just didn't know what to do. So I flew across to Mrs. Gibbons, and she rang police, and they wouldn't let me touch or do a thing. And I couldn't remember your address. I had been away for the weekend, and went up tonight as usual to get his meal. Saw his bedroom light on, the lounge curtains not drawn back, milk on step and paper in door. So I thought he'd gone out early and forgot to put his light off. So I went and knocked at his bedroom door. Got no answer, so walked in. Saw him in bed. He must have died during the night. The police have been up here again tonight for me to make a statement. She then added, Mr. and Mrs. Gibson saw Mr. Allen out walking Monday evening. He was perfectly all right then. The weekend before, he'd had W sick. Gandy over for the weekend, and they seem to have had a really good time. Then Mr. and Mrs. Webb came to dinner Tuesday, and Mrs. Webb had afternoon tea with him Wednesday, the day she removed. To Mrs. Clayton, the possibility that Turing had committed suicide seemed inconceivable enough to warrant her offering evidence against it, though not so inconceivable that she felt no need to bring it up. Nonetheless, the result of the inquest held on June 10, was that Turing had killed himself. It seemed that the apple had been dipped in a cyanide solution. In the years following his death, many of Turing's friends entered into a sort of conspiracy with his mother to propagate the myth that his death was the result not of suicide, but of a scientific experiment gone awry. In cooking up this theory, they pointed to the stock of chemicals, including potassium cyanide, that he kept at his house, as well as his array of scientific equipment. For example, Dr. Greenbaum, the psychoanalyst, wrote to Mrs. Turing, There is not the slightest doubt to me that Alan died by an accident. You describe Alan's fashion of experimenting so vividly that I can see him pottering about. He was like a child while experimenting, not always taking in the observed illegible, but also testing it with his fingers. When he died, he was never as far away from suicide as there. Likewise, his neighbor, Mrs. Webb, told Mrs. Turing that she found it difficult to connect the verdict of the coroner with Alan's behavior before we left Park Villa on June 3rd. He invited us to dinner on June 1st, and we spent a most delightful evening with him then. I saw him several times during the next two days, and on the day we moved, he invited me in for a cup of tea. He made toast, and we had it on the kitchen table. It was such a jolly party, Mrs. Clayton joining us for a cup of tea when she came in. Alan was full of plans for coming to visit us at Style on his way home from the university in the afternoons, and I cannot believe that he had any idea then of what he was going to do. It must have come upon him quite suddenly. Hugh Alexander, still in the thick of cryptanalysis, wrote to Mrs. Turing, I can confirm what you say about his being in good spirits lately. I had a letter from him about a month before he died, saying that he was having treatment, that he felt it was doing him good, and that he was in better spirits than he had been 
censored. Presumably, Alexander's letter was censored because of his continuing work for the government in cryptanalysis. Because of this, I was particularly shocked when I read what had happened, and I am very glad to learn that it might well have been an accident. As late as 1960, Mrs. Turing was still collecting evidence to support her version of events. This last letter came from Turing's former colleague, W.T. Jones, now a professor of philosophy at Pomona College in California. If I may say so, I think that all of the evidence, both positive and negative, tends to support your views about the circumstances of his death. By negative, I mean that I do not think Alan was at all the sort of person who would take his own life. By positive, I mean that he was the sort of person who would be careless about, rather inattentive to, dangerous aspects of the experiments he was conducting. Interestingly, none of Turing's friends ever seems to have considered, at least in writing, a third possibility, one admittedly for which there is no evidence, at present anyway, namely that the suicide was staged, that the man in the white suit had become, like the hero of Alfred Hitchcock's 1934 film, a man who knew too much. If he did kill himself, he seems to have thought that he was going somewhere. Remember that in the untitled story, Alec Price is an authority on interplanetary travel. In March 1954, a few months before his death, Turing sent Robin Gandy a series of four cryptic postcards. The first was lost. The other three consisted of a list of numbered aphorisms bearing the collective title Messages from the Unseen World. 3. The universe is the interior of the light cone of the creation. 4. Science is a differential equation. Religion is a boundary condition. Signed, Arthur Stanley. Arthur Stanley Eddington, 1882-1944 mathematical physicist with whom Turing studied at Cambridge. 5. Hyperboloids of wondrous light, rolling for eye through space and time, harbor those waves which somehow might play out God's wondrous pantomime. 6. Particles are founts. 7. Charge equals E divided by pi Ang of character of a two-pi rotation. 8. The exclusion principle is laid down purely for the benefit of the electrons themselves, who might be corrupted and become dragons or demons if allowed to associate too freely. Other mathematicians as great as Turing had ended their lives in madness. Cantor had, also Gödel, Perhaps Turing, too, was becoming delusional near the end, imagining himself rolling through space in a hyperboloid of wondrous light, known as Price's buoy. Or perhaps, as Gandhi thought, this was all part of a new quantum mechanics not intended to be taken very seriously, almost in the for-amusement-only class, although no doubt he hoped something might turn up in it which could be taken seriously. Or perhaps the new quantum mechanics involved apples, light cones, and spaceships. In a mathematician's apology, Hardy had written, No mathematician should ever allow himself to forget that mathematics, more than any other art or science, is a young man's game. 
Yet Turing, according to Gandhi, had not lost his powers. Indeed, in the months before his death, he had come up with an upper bound for the skews number that was lower than the one that skews himself had established. This would have been a significant achievement had he chosen to publish it. But he did not. He said he didn't want to embarrass skews. The idea of suicide, if it came upon him at all, must have come upon him suddenly. The method, on the other hand, seems to have been in the back of his mind for years. For instance, from Princeton, his friend James Atkins told Andrew Hodges, Turing had once written a letter proposing a suicide method that involved an apple and electric wiring. He often told his friends that he ate an apple every night before going to bed. And of course, in Cambridge, for weeks after the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he would chant as he walked down the corridors of kings, Dip the apple in the brew, let the sleeping death seep through. Today the apple continues to fascinate. Much is made of its metaphorical implications. Apple of death, apple of knowledge, but too much knowledge? A rumor circulates on the Internet that the apple that is the logo of Apple Computers is meant as a nod to Turing. The company denies any connection. On the contrary, it insists its apple alludes to Newton. But then why has a bite been taken out? Perhaps what chills us is that in taking his own life, Turing actually chose to camp it up a bit, to invest his departure from a world that had treated him shabbily with some of the gothic, eerie, colorful brilliance of a Disney film. And yet in all the pages I have read about Turing, and there are scores of them, no one has yet mentioned what seems to me the most obvious message. In the fairy tale, the apple into which Snow White bites doesn't kill her. It puts her to sleep until the prince wakes her up with a kiss. This concludes the reading of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Alan Turing and the Invention of the Computer by David Levitt. Copyright 2006 by David Levitt. This book was read by Paul Michael Garcia. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with W.W. Norton and Company, Incorporated, and was produced in 2014 by Blackstone Audio Inc., which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audio, Inc. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you.